is the Word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. And then comes the turning point in the story and the turning point in this young man's life. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And so the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Daniel remained there. That is right at the heart of Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. That is the end of the exile. Amen. Now, there are some notes on a little bit of paper that uh, you were given when you came in. That'll help us uh, work our way through this chapter. Before that, let's just pause for a minute and pray and ask for God's help. Lord, teach us from your word what it's like to live as a Christian in the world what it's like to live distinctively, not apart from the world, nor compromised by the world, but to live on that line, that line of distinction in the world, standing up and speaking out the gospel. Help us to listen and help us to respond in obedience 
with our lives to your word. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All captives entered into the great city of Babylon, the great city of the ancient world, through the Ishtar Gate, and then along the Ishtar Way into the city. The Ishtar Gate has been restored brick by brick in a museum in Berlin. Some of you may have seen it. It is about exactly as high as the ceiling is above me. It is about as wide as this church. The whole thing is a facade of blue bricks. And on these bricks there are bulls and dragons, the guardians of the gate. There's a tiny entrance at the bottom of it that you walk through. And you walk through that Ishtar gate in all of its magnificence as a captive going into Babylon. And you walk up the Ishtar way, 10 feet walls on either side for 500 yards. On either side, blue bricks, this time not bulls and dragons, but lions lining the way into Babylon. Why take captives into Babylon through the Ishtar gate? Well, for one reason, it was designed to intimidate them. It was designed to teach them that Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king on the earth and that his kingdom was all-powerful. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, aged 17 or 18, maybe younger, walked through that gate in 605 BC, part of the first wave of exiles taken into Babylon. Now think of them. It looked like and felt like that the power was with Nebuchadnezzar, that he is the king, that he is calling the shots. Notice how the book of Daniel begins. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That is factual history. History records the might of Nebuchadnezzar and his mighty Babylonian empire, overwhelming, overpowering Jehoiakim, Jerusalem, the people, God himself. That is what it looked like. That is what it felt like. But the reality is different. Verse 2 tells us what was really going on, who the true king is. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And so it might look like and feel like the power is with Nebuchadnezzar, but in reality, God rules. The Lord is king. God is in control. The power is with God. And that takes us to the very heart of the message of Daniel. If we were to run through the book of Daniel over 12 weeks or so, the drumbeat that is beat every week, every single chapter, is the Lord is king. God rules. And as Christians today living in this city, living in this secular nation, living in the Western world, it does not look like nor feel like God rules. It just doesn't. But the fact is, He does. And Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, as they walked through that mighty Ishtar gate with the bulls and the dragons and the lions, I wondered if Daniel turned 
to Hananiah or Mishael and said to them, we need to remember that God rules. We need to remember that as we live our lives in Babylon in the secular city, that God is on the throne, that God rules. Remember who rules. Now, verses 3 to 7, the second heading on the sheet, living in a university city facing pressure to conform. It is certain that this group of young men taken into exile in Babylon would have been afraid. But mixed with their fear, there surely also would have been a sense of excitement and anticipation at the opportunities that lay before them. After all, they weren't being taken to some dungeon or prison in Babylon. Far from it. Read with me again from verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that to enter the king's service. These young people were being given places in King's College, Babylon, the Ivy League of the ancient world, bar none, the best university in the land, five A stars in your A levels to get in. And here they're being given free places. What an opportunity! Fear on the one hand and opportunity, excitement on the other. The fast track, King's College Babylon, to a key position in the diplomatic core of the ancient world, the king's service. They must have felt some sense of excitement and anticipation. Now, what was the world they entered like? What was it like to study in King's College in Babylon? Well, the text refers to the language and literature of the Babylonians, a different way of thinking. Moreover, Babylon was a place of many gods. The name Babylon means gateway to the place of many gods. Enter the world of Babylon and enter the world of many gods. That uh, fact is evident from the Babylonian names given to Daniel and his friends. Verse 7, the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Belteshazzar includes the name of the Babylonian god Bel. The names Shadrach and Meshach include the name of the Babylonian god Ak, the moon god. Abednego contains the name Nebo, the shining god. Babylon is a place of many gods. One writer describes the world of Babylon like this. It's like living in a culture where there are many truths, many gods, and many ways to live. Or if you want to describe that in big words, a culture which espouses relativism, many truths, pluralism, many gods, and moral relativism, many ways 
to live. That's the world of Babylon. But that's just the ancient world, isn't it? It's the world of today just as much as the world of Babylon. It has not changed. The world that God's people find themselves in then is pretty much the same as the world that God's people, Christians, find themselves in today. Think, for example, of the university campus. What is the prevailing culture? Many truths, different ideas, different ideologies, all with an equal status. My take on the world, your take on the world, equally valid. No such thing as absolute truth. No place for a belief that there is only one true explanation of the world and humanity. A world of many truths and a world of many gods. The idea then and now of there being one true God, the very idea of the uniqueness of Christ, anathema to our culture. There's a phrase that has come to be current in our culture today. Many faiths or none. And freedom to live your life pretty much as you like as long as it doesn't harm anybody else. Many truths, many gods, many ways to live. Freedom to live your life pretty much as you like as long as it doesn't harm anybody else. That's a quote from Dawkins in his God Delusion, one of his Ten Commandments, which he articulates with sincerity because simply it speaks of the compass of our age. Live your life as you like, as long as it doesn't harm anybody else. But of course, the question is, where do you draw the boundaries around that? Any notion of living your life in accordance with the revealed Word of God is countercultural or regarded as bizarre, naive. That is the climate, that is the world in which we live. Not just on the university campus, though. It's the atmosphere of the city, the atmosphere of the world all around us. And in such a culture as Christians, we face pressure to conform. Nebuchadnezzar's tactics were strategic. He sought to influence the young, the future leaders of God's people. That is a pretty astute tactic. Put God out of their lives, or at least compromise their distinctiveness, the future leaders of God's people, and the impact will be felt like a ripple effect for generations to come. Persuade them, the young, to buy into this culture of many truths, many gods, many ways to live, and the impact will run. And so what did he do? He selected the future leaders of God's people, the brightest and the best of them, the most connected, and he changed their location, he changed their language, he changed their diet, he even changed their names. Daniel, God is my judge, becomes Belteshazzar, O lady, wife of the god Bel, protect the king. Hananiah, God is gracious, becomes Shadrach, under the command of Aku, and so on. Now, we don't face that kind of pressure to conform. There might be occasions... Once or twice in my life as a Christian, only once or twice, I have faced very direct antagonistic pressure. But for the most part, we don't. The pressure to conform that we experience is far more subtle, subconscious even. Let me tell you what it is. It is the pressure of the mainstream or the pressure of peer pressure, of going along with the majority view. 
you're a Christian and you subscribe to absolute truth, one right way of understanding the world and humanity, if you believe that, if you're a Christian and you believe in the uniqueness of God, the uniqueness of Christ, if you seek to live your life by the Word of God, if you believe there's right and wrong in terms of how to live, if you believe these kind of things, then you are logically, proportionately, numerically way out of step with the mainstream. And that is not easy. Whether you are 18 or 30 or 50 or 70, to live out of step with the mainstream. It's an overused illustration, but it's a good one nonetheless. It's like standing in a river against the current. Or when we went on holiday to Cornwall, standing 10 yards off the shore with a rip current tugging under your feet. The easiest thing to do is to go with the flow. It's hard to stand against the mainstream, the prevailing culture. Now, verses 8 to 16. The title I've given to these verses, Taking a Stand, Trusting in God. Verse 8 is the turning point in the story. Arguably the turning point in this young man, Daniel's life. In the world of Babylon, Daniel, this young man, took a stand making it clear to those around him, but also to himself, where his true allegiance lay. Verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. The verb translated resolved there in verse 8 is the same verb translated gave in verse 7. In other words, the chief official imposed with force new names on them. Daniel, same verb, put it on his heart with force that he would not go along and be compromised by that culture. Now, there's lots for us to learn here. Let me try and draw out some of the practicalities. Notice the two words first at the beginning of verse 6, among these. These words imply that the group of young people taken from Jerusalem and enrolled in King's College Babylon was much larger than simply Daniel and his three friends, maybe 20, probably 100 or so. But the focus from verse 8 onwards is just on Daniel and his friends. Why? Well, the logical consequence, the logical conclusion is that they were the only ones who took a stand. The only ones who publicly demonstrated their allegiance to God. So how did that group of a hundred divide? Well, some, a good number, would simply have given in to the pressure of the world. Their testimony is God's people compromised. They went into Babylon with the Lord's song in their hearts and in their heads, but over time, they lost the clarity of their message. Others maybe kept their faith, but it was a secret faith. They sang songs, but they sang songs to one another and not to the world around them. No one would have known they were a believer. They had a message to proclaim, but no one ever heard it. And then there was Daniel and his friends who took a stand and lived distinctively in the world of Babylon. Listen to these words from 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a great application of the book of Daniel to Christians. This is how you and I are to live if we are Christians. I urge you 
as exiles in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. That simply means in the world. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That's how we're to live. So Daniel and his friends lived distinctively in the world. Standing out, speaking out. Not compromised by the world. Not withdrawing from it. But living on the line of distinction. So think of the Christian students coming up to universities in this city. A number of you here tonight are students. Think of Christian freshers. How will they divide? Some over time will give in and be compromised by the world, losing their distinctiveness. Others may withdraw from the world. And they find that six months down the track, their only friends are in the CU or in churches. They have a faith, a message, but no one hears it. But then there will be others, and we pray many, many others, who will live distinctively in the world, not compromised by it nor withdrawing from it, but in the world, standing out, speaking out, telling the gospel that others might come to believe. And that division is true of Christians of any age, some Christians struggle all their life and are sucked in and are compromised by the world. Some Christians withdraw from the world and simply surround themselves with other Christians. But many, by God's grace, live distinctively in the world, standing out, speaking out, telling the gospel that others might come to believe. And Daniel and his friends took a stand and lived distinctively in the world of Babylon. And notice when Daniel took his stand, right at the beginning of his time in Babylon, right at the start. And so if you are a fresher who's come up to university, take your stand for God now. Not in six months or not in a year. It'll be far harder then. Or if you've come to Edinburgh and are starting a new job, take your stand now. Or if you've never taken a stand where you are in work or wherever, on your street or your neighbors or the golf club or whatever it is, do it this week. While this is fresh in your mind, leave it. And it becomes much, much harder. My wife is a great evangelist. I'm not. I find it awfully hard simply to tell people I'm a Christian. I'm a minister. I tell them I'm a minister, not a Christian. That seems to go down better. She said to me the other day, you're preaching on Daniel 1. You're watching your eight-year-old playing football. Tell the dads on the touchline you're a Christian. I came home. She said, did you do it? I said, no. She said, it'll be harder next Saturday. And she was right. But I did it. And it wasn't that hard. Just to say you're a Christian. Now, what did Daniel take his stand over? What do we make of his decision not to defile himself with royal food and wine? Why did he say no to that? Was it because it had been sacrificed to the gods of Babylon? Because it almost certainly would have been. Was that the reason? Maybe. But what about Esther? 
she did eat the royal food and drink the royal wine that had been sacrificed to pagan gods, so we can't take that as a hard and a fast rule. And of course, while Daniel said no to this, there was a lot that he didn't say no to, like his change of name. He didn't say no to that. You're not calling me Belteshazzar. Or learning the language and literature of the Babylonians. And much of what he had learned would have been contradictory to his faith. He didn't say no to that. In fact, he excelled, as we see later in the chapter. Excelled in Babylonian knowledge and literature and wisdom. Nor did he refuse his place in King's College in the first place. Nor did he refuse the job offers and the promotion in the world of Babylon that came after his training. So what do we learn? We learn that as Christians we are not to fight every battle. Something a bit unnerving about a Christian who takes a different stand every week. Something a bit unnerving about a Christian who's always on a crusade with some agenda. We're not called to fight every battle. God calls us to live distinctively in the world, and therefore he means that we've got to find our way, our place in the world. The prophecy of Jeremiah says to the people of God in Babylon, build houses, settle down, get jobs. Don't fight every battle, but over some issue, whatever it is, and we cannot be prescriptive as to what it is, in some way or other as Christians, we need to take a stand. Why? so that our allegiance to God might be clear to the world around us that we are known to be Christians. So, for example, a Christian student I met at the St. Andrews University house party, he was a hockey player. In fact, he was a very good hockey player in the university first 11. And he told me that when he came up to uni and got into the team, he took his stand as a Christian. When all of the students went out for drinks after the game. That's the culture he was in. And he felt it was fine for him to have a drink with his friends. But after one, he stopped. That for him was how he drew the line with his friends. And he told them why he did it. And they teased him, but they got used to him and they respected him. But that takes courage. Someone I know who worked in financial services, a high-profile job, and in the round of salary increases, when these things happened, salary increases, that is, they said to their boss that they didn't want another salary increase because they were already paid too much. Now, I'm not commending that as a principle. Your pastor would have my head. If you're struggling with a big salary increase, he can help you spend it. I use that because it's a true example. For them, for that individual, it was how they drew a line. And they said to the boss, I'm a Christian. I have enough. Daniel didn't take a stand on everything, but for him it was this thing. And how did he take a stand? Verse 8b, he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself. Now picture, he goes to Ashvanaz and he says, Ashvanaz, I, I, I just wonder if perhaps you could see it to allowing me and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah just not to take this food and wine because really 
because of our convictions and our faith, it's just a line that we, that's how he spoke to him. Gracious and steady. I said a moment ago that uh, Christians who fight battles over everything are a bit unnerving. Christians who fight battles over everything very loudly are a bit unnerving. Sometimes it's a place for strong defiance. Daniel chapter 3. But very often, most often, that quiet, steady, gracious approach goes a long way. Daniel is gracious, but there's a bit of savvy about him too. After all, he was a politician. When Ashpenaz, the chief official, verse 10, refused Daniel's request because he would lose his head, what does Daniel do? He goes to the number two, verse 11. He said to the guard, test us for 10 days. He's gracious, he's wise in how he took his stand. Now, before we come to the final point, let me ask this very important question. Why did Daniel take his stand? What was it that motivated him? Well, Daniel remembered who was king. In spite of what it looked like, in spite of what it felt like, Daniel knew where the true power lay. Daniel knew as he looked him in the eye that Nebuchadnezzar was a great king, but Daniel knew he was not the king, for the Lord is king. Daniel took his stand trusting not in his own strength, but trusting in God. Daniel knew that God would be with him as he publicly pledged his allegiance to him. Daniel took his stand, trusting in his God. And notice from the text that God was with him. Verse 9, God had caused the official to show favor. Why did Daniel and his friends, verse 15, look healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food? Now, my Bible commentaries feel the need to explain in 15 pages that it was not because of their vegetarian diet and the water. Of course it wasn't. Nowadays, a vegetarian diet and volvic fresh spring water would make you look healthy, but not then. It was dirty. The point is, they should have looked peely-wally. It's a Scottish word. They should have looked ill. They should have looked so bad that Nebuchadnezzar said, what have you done? But God gave them vitality. God gave them shiny cheeks. God was with them. Verse 17, God gave them knowledge and understanding. Daniel took his stand, trusting in God, and God was with them. If I was to ask you who is the hero of the book of Daniel, you would not get it wrong now. There was a time when I preached on the book of Daniel and held out Daniel as the hero of the book of Daniel. Daniel is an inspiring example to us, but if your inspiration is Daniel, you will not live distinctively in the world. He will not motivate you. Your inspiration needs to be Daniel's inspiration, Daniel's God. God is our inspiration. God is the hero of the story. God is the hero of the Bible. It's remembering that God rules that will let you go to work tomorrow or to uni tomorrow or to the school gate tomorrow or to the golf club tomorrow, whatever it is. And that's what will enable you to say to people that you are a Christian, to take your stand, 
to invite them even along to church. Now, finally, verses 17 to 21, God builds his kingdom. How does God build his kingdom? Well, the story of the Bible, God builds his kingdom as God's people stand up and speak out the gospel. They took a stand. The result, verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there at the very heart of public political life in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus, the end of the exile. God's people, God builds his kingdom as God's people stand up and speak out the gospel. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's tactics. He sought to influence the young, the future leaders of God's people. And so he put them into King's College in Babylon and he exposed them to all sorts of pressure to conform. His intention to train them to be leaders of Babylon, the future leaders of God's people as future leaders in Babylon. That was his tactic, astute as it was to put God out of their lives, their minds. And with many, his tactics would have been successful. Many would have conformed. But some, like Daniel and his friends, lived that line of distinction. But Nebuchadnezzar got his way, didn't he? The future leaders of God's people, Daniel and his friend, did become leaders in Babylon. But instead of that tactic, putting God out of their lives, they put God into the heart of Babylon and ultimately into the heart of this great king himself. So whoever you are as a Christian, whatever your context you find yourself in, God calls us to take a stand, nothing dramatic, no big dramas, simply coming clean to those around us that we are Christians. And if we are willing, God will give us opportunities to do so. This week he will. Tomorrow he will. To show the world around us where your true allegiance lies. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, someone has invited you here, and someone has told you, your friend, that they are a Christian, then they have taken this stand for you because the Christian message that they want to share with you is the most important message in all of the earth. And that message is that the Lord is King. The Lord is King. Jesus came and lived and died and rose again that we might be forgiven and that we might become those who stand up and proclaim his message. Let me pray.